In recent years, Canada, like the United States, has been engaged in a national conversation on race. But my guests on today's program say that that conversation involves some faulty assumptions and does not always acknowledge the diversity of opinion within communities of color, particularly when it comes to critical race theory, which has a starting point that few would dispute. It is a necessary reality for people who look a certain way to be treated fairly. And I think a lot of people are moved by that. They genuinely are like, well, I don't want to be part of an organization or a community. I don't want to live in a country where people aren't getting a fair chance. And so they're genuinely like, okay, well, maybe I should let my guard down and trust these people that their vision for social change is the right one. So they let their guard down. And then activists who really do want to deconstruct our institutions and deconstruct our country, then have the leeway they need to make some of the dramatic radical changes that I think at our gut level, a lot of us know don't sound right. Jamil Giovanni is a lawyer and author and a columnist at the National Post. He's also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, where he helped found the Speak for Ourselves initiative. It recently published a series of essays on critical race theory, including one from Samuel Say. Samuel Say is a Canadian writer and thinker who blogs at slowtowrite.com. He's also a spokesperson on critical race theory for parents as first educators. I'm pleased to have Jamil Giovanni and Samuel Say as my guests today on Lean Out. Well, Jamil, welcome back to Lean Out. And Samuel, wonderful to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Tanana. Great to talk with you again, Tara. So nice to have you both on. It's great to be able to have a conversation about critical race theory, something that has been in the news a lot, but is often misunderstood. Jamil, let's start with you. We're often told critical race theory is a very complicated legal theory only taught in law schools. You went to law school, set this up for us. What is critical race theory? Yeah, well, it did start off as a law school ideology, a law school theory. And when I learned about it in law school, which I was in law school that long ago, I graduated in 2013, it was, I would say, a critique, right? It was a way of looking at laws and policies and asking for people to think about the racial implications of those laws and policies. And the basic idea was that there is a racial implication to everything. And so if you're not talking about it and you haven't found it, it's because you haven't been looking hard enough. The idea is that it's there, whether you are aware of it or not. And at the time, I remember learning about it in school and thinking, okay, like if you add that to a, you know, a conversation about a given law or policy, maybe it helps you check your blind spot. Maybe it helps you understand history and context in a way that's helpful. So I didn't think about it as like a very big deal. Just like one of the tools you might have to understand the world around you. But in the very short period of time, like it's been less than 10 years since I graduated law school, it has very quickly evolved from a fringe critique within universities to now something that is being practiced 
as a governing ideology in institutions, whether it's business, human resource departments, whether it's government policy shops, whether it's think tanks, whether it's public schools, it has now become a worldview that is dominant rather than fringe. And that's really important because something can be valuable as a point of critique, but become a totally different monster when it becomes the dominant governing ideology. And that's what's happened here. So just for as an example, we have shifted the conversation from, hey, maybe we should think about if there's a different way people of color are impacted by that law to we definitely know people of color are being differently impacted and therefore we need to make that our dominant perspective on every single thing that we might be tackling as an institution. That's a pretty big difference in, in how we think. And that is what critical race theory has become. So when people say that it's just a university thing or it's really complicated and we don't know who's being taught it or where it exists, the thing that I would just ask them is, did you know 10 years ago the term systemic racism? Did you know 10 years ago the term white privilege? The answer is probably no for most people. And the fact that those terms are now so pervasive is all the evidence you need that critical race theory is not only being taught, but it has now been so widely embraced by certain aspects of our society that its language is now embedded into the very mainstream ways we talk about life together. And that is exactly why people are concerned about critical race theory and why you know, two black men like me and Samuel take the time out of our day to talk about it because it's impacting us. You could try to gaslight us and tell us that we're just making this up, but the truth is that this is part of our lived experience as critical race theorists like to say, it is now part of our lived experience in this society where people look at you and presume you feel like a victim. People look at you and presume you feel oppressed because of what you look like. That is critical race theory in action. Mm-hmm. And just a quick follow-up on that. I mean, this series of essays, very interesting essays for the Speak for Ourselves initiative. Jamil, why did you feel it was important to bring together writers of color in this country, plus Jonathan Kay, to offer alternate viewpoints on this issue? Well, part of it was giving voice to people. Like, as a public person, you know, who puts my ideas out there in newspapers and podcasts and videos on a regular basis, I receive a lot of messages from people of all different backgrounds who tell me, Hey, Jamil, I agree with you. I wish I could say that. Hey, Jamil, thanks for saying what you say. People need to know that not all of us think the same way, but they don't feel empowered or safe to say those things themselves. So part of why it was important to not just do this essay series with established writers, and yes, we did have John Kay providing his perspective as the elder statesman of the group, but it was important for us to show people like you don't have to be an established writer to have an opinion worth sharing on something that's affecting your life. And even though it might feel as a person of color that you are alone, if you don't embrace this way of thinking, the truth is you're not alone. And that's like one of the main things that I try to communicate to people. So one of the best ways to get that message across is to just act in unity, to bring people together who don't agree on every issue, who have different experiences, who come from different neighborhoods and different cultural backgrounds, and say, one thing we do have in common is that we don't think this theory, critical race theory, speaks for us and speaks to our experience in this country. And to show people like, you can have that point of view and that experience and not be ostracized. And Samuel, I want to bring you in. You wrote an excellent essay for this series. You opened your piece with an anecdote of uh, experience you had in February of 2021. Walk us through what happened. 
Actually, Jamil was very helpful in making this story become more uh, well-known in, in Canada because he had me on his radio show and we talked about this. But yeah, in February 2021, a school named Ambrose University in Calgary, this is a supposedly Christian school, they reached out to me for me to talk on uh, racism for Black History Month. But I suppose they had not done their research. They assumed, since I was a, a young Black Canadian, that I was going to parrot the critical race theory talking points that they, I guess, teach at the school. So I just had my, a talk on what is the biblical definition of racism, uh, being a Christian, and this being a supposedly Christian school, I wasn't expecting for it to be as controversial as it was. I basically explained that, of course, there's racism in Canada, but we Christians define racism as simply partiality or prejudice or bias against anyone because of their skin color. And I made a point to say that in our nation, we do not have a systemic racism. We do not have a policy or a law that suggests that people who are not white are inferior. And at the talk, there was, I asked, hey, if you guys disagree with me, that's okay. Uh, just because I'm black, it doesn't mean that you can disagree. It doesn't mean that you're wrong if you disagree with me. And not a single person raised any question to disagree with me or any uh, objection. And then afterward, about a month later, the school released a statement denouncing me for denigrating the students, claiming that I was essentially not an ally with uh, Black people and people of color. And it was a huge surprise to me. I mean, I, I was expecting that I, I had heard that they were upset with my talk, but I did not think they would do what they did, which is you know to denounce me in that way. Now, of course, they probably didn't mention my name because as I said in an article that I wrote about it, it'd be really awkward for the school to name me and to say that they were disagreeing with a black man on racism. Not that you can't disagree with me because I'm black, but given their worldview, given their ideology as critical race theorists, they are out here. This is an all white faculty um, basically. And they were denouncing me for, as uh, Jamil said, explaining my lived experiences as they would say on racism. I ended up actually reaching out to, well, the school reached out to me because publicly the National Post had written an article about it and they were getting nervous about it because I, I know people who were sending their children to the school and they were very concerned about the critical race theory curriculums in there. So they reached out to me and they privately told me that, yes, what they said was untrue, but of course they didn't publicly say that. Mm. And I do want to get, you raised the issue of education curriculum. I want to get to that in a moment, but Jamil, first, why do you think critical race theory has spread so quickly from academic settings to, as you said before, corporations, government, public education? Like, why does this have such legs? Yeah, it's a good question, Tara, because if you take people at face value, it's because they care about racism and they care about inequality. But then you hear a story like the one Sam just told us and you say to yourself, well, like, let's just put it into perspective because Sam's a humble guy, but he's got one of the biggest social media followings of any black person in Canada who's not an entertainer or an athlete. Like for a black man in this country to have the following he has simply for his thoughts, his conviction, his ability to communicate around important ideas, that's very valuable for any community to have, but especially the Black community, because we have such few voices like his that are out there. So for people who say they care about racism and inequality, to treat a Black man in the public square like that makes you really wonder how much of it is about concern for our community at all in the first place. So I don't take them at face value that it's really about us. 
to be honest, I think although Black people become the face of a lot of these debates and these arguments, I don't know how much of it really is about our community, our children, our parents. I don't think it's a matter of us being the priority at all. So the real issue to me becomes we have people who would like to secure power and influence within the institutions that they're part of. They might get a job as a teacher, or they might get a job as a policy analyst. Maybe they get a job in a human resource department, and they have a particular worldview that is very critical of the status quo. In many cases, they don't like our country for historical reasons. Maybe they're angry at some of the historical influences in the country, like capitalism, like Christianity, like British-style parliamentary democracy. They don't value the things that have sort of made a country like Canada possible. And so the way they manipulate institutions and people to allow for their deconstruction agenda to be mainstreamed is to say that it is a necessary reality for people who look a certain way to be treated fairly. And I think a lot of people are moved by that. They genuinely are like, well, I don't want to, you know, be part of a, an organization or a community. I don't want to live in a country where people aren't getting a fair chance. And so they're genuinely like, okay, well, maybe I should let my guard down and trust these people that their vision for social change is the right one. So they let their guard down. And then activists who really do want to deconstruct our institutions and deconstruct our country, then have the leeway they need to make some of the dramatic radical changes that I think at our gut level, a lot of us know don't sound right, but we become afraid to argue with and fight with these radical changes because we will be seen as enemies of progress on the wrong side of history, perhaps even selfish because we are being made to feel that if we do what we think is right, it is to the detriment of another group of people. So I think that's the appeal of a lot of this is that a very small number of activists have accumulated a tremendous amount of influence by effectively scaring the majority of people in every community, not just the majority of white people, majority of black people, majority of every group into feeling like they've got to just stand back and let this happen or else they will be considered bad people. If I could add to what Jamila said, and everything he's saying is spot on, you know, just to give an example, with the vaccine issue uh, in Canada, it was disproportionately affecting a lot of Black Canadians. So when you had the Freedom Convoy, uh, most Black Canadians were strongly supporting the Freedom Convoy. But because of critical race theory, the government framed the convoy. They used critical race theory to denounce the Freedom Convoy, even though it is, of course, going against the values of Black Canadians. And I actually tried to reach out to the, some of the influential critical race theorists in Canada about this issue, and they were completely mum. Because critical race theory, as Jamil said, is not really focusing on what would best help Black Canadians or any Black person. It's really about framing certain things that they do not like as racist as a way to get, in their minds, Black people to be against the very ideas that actually helps us. That's really interesting you bring up the Freedom Convoy because I had Rupa Subramanya on the podcast last week. And here is a woman who is not white walking around the Freedom Convoy and saying, like, this is not my experience. I'm not seeing a lot of white supremacists in this gathering. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting point. 
I want to dive into public education now because I do think there is a sort of misunderstanding of, of how much critical race theory has come into the schools, what that means. You write about this in your piece, Samuel. What was Bill 67 for people who are not familiar? Yeah, Bill 67 is, it, it really shocks me to, to this day. Many Canadians don't know about it. Now, I know it's basically it was a, a, uh, in Ontario, it was a policy to make critical race theory a more entrenched aspect of our curriculum. Essentially, it would give the government power to strip licenses from teachers if they were not adequately, in their minds anyways, through committees and through just the subject subjective thinking on whether a teacher is sufficiently anti-racist, if they were not being anti-racist or embracing equity or racial equity, that they would be able to lose their license, would not be able to get jobs. It would also find, it was vague in their framing, but it would find persons who were either not being anti-racist in the schools or who were, would push back on anti-racism in the school. So it could be students, teachers, or perhaps parents, we don't know. So it didn't end up passing uh, and we're thankful for that. And that's because of people like Jamil and Jordan Peterson and others, including PAIF, parents and educators, pushing back against this. But if it had passed, it would have been the most authoritarian, most radical critical race theory bill in the world. And it almost passed in Ontario. Wow. And you just referenced the parents as first educators. What, what is that group, Samuel? You're a spokesperson for them, I understand. Yeah, it's a, it's a group that seeks to protect parents um, and the children on their rights uh, when it comes to education. Uh, we we're seeing that in Ontario and across Canada, critical race theory and other similar ideologies, such as gender ideology, queer ideology, all within the critical theory, postmodern movements. It is really teaching children ideas that a lot of parents do not want them to be to be embracing. Uh, kids are being told in you know in as early as kindergarten in Peel, the school that I I grew up in, the Peel District School Board, and kids are being taught that they're being forced to read things like Ibram Kendi's The Anti-Racist Baby, where kids are being taught that they are racist unless they're being anti-racist, unless they're supporting critical race theory. And you have kids coming back home to their parents saying, I don't want to be white. I have parents, I have I have teachers and principals teaching me, t- telling me, emailing me that they're struggling with this. I don't know what to do. And I also want to say this, that a lot of public educators are against these ideas. A lot of teachers do not want to embrace these ideas. However, they feel powerless because they know that the unions are of a different thinking on this stuff. And unfortunately, you have Stephen Lecce, who was, you know, who's come out and is very, very unwilling to back parents and back the teachers who are against these, these harmful ideas like critical race to be being taught. So parents and educators, our job is really to just help keep people accountable, to help keep people like Stephen Lecce accountable, to help keep the unions accountable, and really to protect the children and the parents' rights on these issues. Just a question for both of you. I mean, it strikes me as one of the key places this ideology just completely falls apart is for mixed race families. Like if you're teaching someone that one person is an oppressor and the other is oppressed, and this is like your mom and your dad, or I mean, how do you work through that element of it? Yeah, so it certainly is a, that's a personal question for both Sam and I. I come from a mixed race family. My father's from Kenya. My mother's an Irish, Scottish, Canadian. Sam, of course, is a Ghanaian Canadian. He just got married a few months ago, and he is married to a white American lady. So both of us live in that 
reality, which is very common in a country like Canada, that people from all these different places come together and fall in love and have kids. And, you know, that's just the reality of, of life in a multicultural, diverse democracy. And I think you're right, Tara, that it, our experiences, and this is one of the reasons why I think acknowledging some of the like realities of life in this country is difficult for people who embrace this theory is our experiences completely speak against the idea that we are living in these like siloed racial categories that necessitate different worldviews and different lived experiences and that we must sort of be at war or competing with each other to see who's at the top of this like pyramid. I don't think that that ex- describes life well today. Maybe it made sense like a hundred years ago. I don't even know if it made sense then either, but certainly doesn't make a lot of sense now. And so what I would say to you is that critical race theorists do develop language to try to neutralize the perspective of someone like me. So because my mother's white, they would call say someone like me has proximity to whiteness so that if I disagree with them, they can be like, well, that those are your white genes talking, Jamil. You, you, you have, you're too close to whiteness. And then I'll say things to them like, well, okay, so, but like, do you really know anything about me? Because like my father, just as an example, my father is a Muslim. I have a Muslim name. Because I'm biracial, a lot of people think I'm Muslim because my skin is sort of in between black and white. And so I think a lot of the like issues I faced, whether it could be like discrimination or people not understanding where I come from, might be because people assume that I'm Muslim or from North Africa or the Middle East. But that is exactly sort of like the kind of complications of like human identity that critical race theorists can't make sense of. So um, do I really have proximity to whiteness? I don't know. But it sort of speaks to their like lack of sincerity, right? Because it feels like that only comes up when it's an attempt to neutralize someone like me for disagreeing with them. Colin Kaepernick has the same racial background as me. He's also black and white, but he was actually adopted by white people. So I was not adopted by white people. He was. So if anyone was raised in more of a white environment, a white culture, it was Colin Kaepernick. It wasn't Jamil Giovanni. And yet no one ever says Colin Kaepernick has proximity to whiteness when he's kneeling and raising his fist for Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff. So it just feels very selective, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and just to add to what uh, Jamil is saying, now, I'm a Ghanaian Canadian, right? I'm, I'm Black. I'm, I'm dark-skinned. And it's interesting because in Ambrose University, if we were reading between the lines of their statement against me, what they were really saying is, is that I, as a black man, have internalized white supremacy. That is what they say to someone like me who is supposedly so-called, you know, fully black, although that's a ridiculous thing to be saying. But, you know, someone has, you know, a black father, a black mother, they would suggest that I've internalized white supremacy. Why? because I am against critical race theory, because I am not parroting their talking points, right? But then to deal with the interracial or the biracial aspect, what's fascinating is, as Jamil said, I've married a white woman. Increasingly, okay, I'll say this, I've never had a so-called white supremacist denounce me for marrying a white woman. But naturally, the people who believe that my wife is an oppressor because she is white and who believe that I am an oppressed person because I am black. They are the ones who are saying, how could you possibly marry your oppressor? Why would you ever do that? I guarantee you out of, I probably had 20 
people tell me that they are upset that I've married a white woman. And all of them have been critical race theorists, all of them. Uh, my wife has been attacked on social media strictly because I've married her as a black man. Right. There are times where I tell her, don't go on social media today because <laughs> the critical race theorists are out, are out there. Right. And this is because, again, critical race theories is hostile to white people as as oppressors because they are hostile to what they frame as white people, you know, white ideology or whiteness, which would be capitalism or individuality, freedom, basically all the founding values that we appreciate from the West. Right. So they're using their hatred for our Western principles as a way to really denounce white people. And of course, people like myself or Jamil who are not critical race theorists. So how do we navigate this in the schools? Like I'm very, I'm very wary about banning things, but is there a way to teach CRT? Like this is one ideology in many, here's the downsides of it. What, what do you think, how do we navigate that in terms of an educational setting? Yeah, I do think that there is a way to teach it. Like, I don't like banning things either, to be honest. I think it gives them way more power. Like, it makes it look like we're afraid of CRT. But anyone listening to this podcast, like, Sam and I are, are two of the more vocal critics of CRT in Canada. We're not afraid. We engage in these ideas. We write about these ideas. We have no fear of them. And I think that we should trust students of a certain age to be able to think critically about what's presented to them as well. But that presumes that the education system is teaching them how to think critically. And that's the actual challenge. So if we present these ideas to children who've been prepared to parse through information given to them, to ask tough questions, to test theories in reality, just like we have in this conversation, then I think teaching CRT is totally fine. But it's when we don't prepare them to think critically, when they're not encouraged to ask questions, and they're being given CRT like it is a new religion. And that is the problem. Mm -hmm. They're being made to think it is blasphemous to question some of these things. And that's the way someone like Samuel was treated at that university in Alberta, Ambrose University. That's why it's alarming. Because when the school system treats different ways of thinking, dissident thought, diversity of perspective in a hostile manner, then it's sending a message to young people that you better not question this stuff or else you might suffer some consequences. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's the bigger issue. CRT being taught in a curriculum as one way of thinking, I don't have any problem with, but it should be taught like we would teach anything else from evolution to Marxism to Adam Smith's invisible hand. We should be teaching all these different things as ways of explaining the world and then encouraging children to poke at them and see if it makes sense to them or not. I don't see that kind of encouragement in the school system. And one example of why there is no encouragement is exactly what Samuel mentioned with Bill 67 in Ontario. If you have a parliament in the province that is afraid to debate this, how could you expect them to encourage genuine debate in the school system that they have power over? Mm -hmm. I agree with what Jamila is saying. I think I wouldn't phrase it this way, but I am okay with banning critical race theory, but not to ban it from being taught in schools, but to ban teachers from being forced to teach critical race theory, not as a theory, but as, uh, as reality, as what the world really is. So I'll give an example. In the same way that white supremacy as a hateful ideology, the same way critical race theory is a hateful ideology, the same way that I wouldn't want a teacher using public funds to teach children to be white supremacists. I also wouldn't want teachers to teach 
children to be critical race theorists as well too. But I absolutely really want critical race theory to be taught as a theory, as one way of looking at things. And I actually think that's actually helpful to freedom of speech. It's also very helpful to us realizing what is what are some of the good and bad policies out there? What, what is How do we differentiate good policies from bad policies? Um, I actually just had a debate with a critical race theorist a couple of weeks ago, and I loved it because I challenged his views and he challenged mine. I'm better after that debate and he's better as well too. He and I, we, we disagree strongly, but that was good. And I think it gives people when they, when they watch this uh, debate, it would give them a better understanding about why I think the West or Canada is a great nation in spite of what critical race theory say. I think banning critical race theory outright completely is not helpful. But I think again, protecting teachers' rights to teach critical race theory as a theory, instead of being forced to teach it as dogma, to teach it as truth, uh, I think is helpful. Mm. Now, two objections that I hear pretty frequently to this. One of them is if people are complaining about CRT, this is basically white people who are resistant to talking about racism and specifically racist developments in history. And the other one is that CRT is just a natural sort of progression of the civil rights movement. Can you both speak to those two objections? I think the issue with that is if well, not to reference the debate too much, but the person that I was talking to, he made a very similar argument. He mentioned that the pushback against critical race theory is really from white people. And I said, well, well, do you realize the implication of what you're saying? Well, I'm a black person. A lot of black parents are against this. And we have Mike Ramsey, for example, a school board trustee from uh, Waterloo who's against this. Well, is he is he white? And well, clearly he's a black man, but then what is he embracing or internalizing whiteness or white supremacy as well? So I think that is very unhelpful. Now, I'm okay with anybody, black or white, who is against critical race theory because that's what it, it's a hateful ideology. It's an incorrect and unhelpful ideology. But in terms of it being a natural progression from civil rights movement, it's actually interesting because the founders of critical race theory say it's not. They actually say it's a it's a it's a counter to civil rights movement. So the civil rights movement was basically suggested that uh, segregation was against the values the the, the values of uh, the America's America's Constitution. They were saying that America's Constitution is a good thing. It is a righteous thing, and that the nation should go back to that. And basically, they were saying that slavery segregation. Uh, was wrong because it went against America's values through the Constitution. Critical race theory says that America's Constitution in and of itself is racist, right? So it is completely different. They also say that they're against liberalism, they're against equality, they're against, they believe that colorblind ideology is racist. Well, that implies the civil rights movement is racist. So there are two completely different ideologies. Yeah, I think there are a lot of arguments against critical race theory that are legitimate regardless of the race or identity of the person making them. But just speaking from my experience as a Black man, I would say it's totally legitimate for me to say if someone says I'm a perennial victim because of what I look like or because of where my father comes from, and that this immutable characteristic that I carry as a Black man makes me a victim forever meaning I will also pass on victimhood to my children. I think it's fair for me to disagree with that. Whether someone agrees with me or not, I mean, I'm happy to debate. Like Samuel, I'm always down for a good conversation. But that is a legitimate perspective. So when people say only white people have a reason to be uncomfortable with this, I kind of wonder, like, have you thought about what it looks like from the perspective of, a, of another person? 
of a black man who wants to be free and equal in his society and is being told that that's impossible. How would you feel if that if you were told that because you're of your gender or your skin tone or your nationality or where what zip code you were born in or whatever it is about you that you can't change? If someone told you you're going to be a victim forever because of that, and so were your children, I think it's fair to assume people might have some strong reactions to that type of ideology. So Mm -hmm. that's what I would say to people who want to make this a thing like all black people think one way and all white people think another way. It's just nonsense. And, And no one's life experience of genuinely talking to people who look differently than them would, I think, affirm that point of view. To your other point about the civil rights movement, I think that critical race theory is a cynical evolution of people who lost faith in America. Uh, You know, the civil rights movement and the abolition movement against slavery were, were mostly made up of people who said America could be an equal country and we're going to fight to make that reality. They achieved that in legislation, whether they achieved that in reality is, of course, I think at different stages of being true, but there is effort being made to make that true for people's lives in the, their daily life experience. But critical race theorists have abandoned that. You know, They've given up on equality ever being possible. So I don't see them carrying the, the torch for the civil rights movement. I see them being sort of you know people rolling over, quitting on the ambitions of the civil rights movement. Uh, to add to what Jamil was saying is, it's actually interesting that I think most people don't know this. The biggest proponents of critical race theory is not, are, are not black people. They're actually white people. It's white Canadians, it's white Americans. Most black Canadians are more conservative in their thinking than the average white Canadian. So most black people do not support critical race theory, but that's not what you would think given what people would say about critical race theory or black Canadians. So I think that's very helpful to remember. So people who are trying to push back against critical race theory are not necessarily white people. It's just parents. It's just the average Canadian. But the people who are most in support of critical race theory tend to be a lot of the white upper class academia, the politicians. It tends to be them. It is not the average black person. Which is always an interesting kind of point to explore, because there are many people who argue that this CRT is sort of misplaced economic guilt, given how much economic inequality we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I mean, if you want to know one of the most important reasons to oppose CRT, in my view, it is exactly because of the class inequality issue. People who are in the working class, people who are in the middle class have a lot in common, regardless of their racial identity, and critical race theory is preaching the opposite message. So if you're trying to live in a society where the needs of people who make less than $30,000 a year are prioritized, where the experiences of single mothers and people living on disability supports from the government are being understood and appreciated, and turning into real policy solutions, I think critical race theory is a massive distraction from getting anywhere on those policy items. Because what critical race theory will do is, and we've seen many examples of this over the last two years, it will take a class issue, provide a response that only addresses a small portion of people affected by it on racial grounds and tell you, wow, isn't that progress? Meanwhile, the majority of people facing the exact same problem have gotten no help at all. I don't see how that's help. You know that, that that's not, in my view, good ethics. That's not morality from my perspective. But that is what we're being taught to define progress as. 
Well, I just want to end on this. They're in Garth Rowe's essay as part of this uh, series. He puts forward a really strong Christian humanist approach that I found quite moving. And I wondered if you could both just reflect a little bit. I know that you both uh, are religious, and I would love to hear both of you reflect just a little bit on how that informs your looking at this issue. Okay, so I'll start. For me, I think there's a few ways that it informs me, my perspective. So one is that it gives me a helpful way of looking at what is division and what is talking about difference in a way that might lead to positive unity. And I think as a Christian, we are taught to be very sensitive to divisions that get in the way of making the best choices for according to our ethics. And if I think any ideology that threatens to convince you that someone else is less of your brother, less of your sister, less of your neighbor on the basis of what they look like runs completely counter to Christ's teachings that are readily available in the New Testament. A good example, of course, being the Good Samaritan parable, for instance. So I think we're very clearly taught to be sensitive to division that puts people's characteristics in terms of what they look like or where they come from or the tribe they belong to or what have you above their actual conduct and the or as Martin Luther King would say the content of their character when sort of seeing who is part of your community and who is not so I think that's like one really important way that Christianity and critical race theory offer I think a different view on our purpose here. And then the second thing I would add, and I know Sam has a lot more to say on this than I do, but the second thing I would add is just like, I think there's so much inspiration to spend time internally as a Christian, thinking about your your ethics, your purpose, your relationship with God, prayer. So much of that is about you know how we can become better people and have a more positive impact in the world because we spend the time working on our personal selves. And I think ideologies that critical race theory encourage us to explain so much of the world based on things outside of our own control, based on things outside of our own character. So, you know, if you are a black man and you're basically being taught by CRT, that nothing you do is going to make a difference about your standing in your society, I think that can be really discouraging for people who need to be encouraged to, you know, find their inner strength, do what's best for them, do what's best for their family, and not be pessimistic about whether they're going to see any fruit from those efforts. Robin D'Angelo, in her book, White Fragility, she says that a positive white identity is an, a positive white identity is an impossible goal. Where would the abolitionists be if they said that? Where would slavery, what would have happened to slavery if they said that about white people? Where would Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement be in terms of what they were able to achieve if they said that white people are inherently depraved? That's what critical race theory teaches, but that's not what we Christians believe, which is why the abolitionists who are primarily led by Christianity as were the civil rights movement. They believed that all people, all people, we are all depraved. We are all depraved in that there's no person who is perfect. Not one so-called race is better than the other. Critical race theory oftentimes label white people as oppressors because they claim they have power. Well, the reality is that if power is what makes a, a person oppressive, well then that would suggest that if anybody has power, then they would be oppressive as well, whether no matter what their skin color is. The point being that we Christians have a different view than critical race theorists because we recognize that we are all made in the image of God, that it is possible 
to have a positive white identity because the Bible teaches that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all one race. We have different ethnicities, we have different tribes, but we are all one race in Adam and Eve, right? So that is the one thing that gives me hope in that I don't see my wife, for example, as my oppressor. I don't see my wife as having a different race. We are one race, but we have different cultures and we have different ethnicities. And one of the fascinating things, not all, things is that not only is critical race theory distracting us from issues such as maybe class, but it's also uh, such as cultures, right? We, my wife and I have ex experiences where if I didn't know better, I would think, I would see our different cultures as being an example of racism, right? I know that because she comes from a different culture and because I come from a different culture as well, sometimes our differences are different ways of seeing things. It's because we have different backgrounds, not because I'm racist against her or she's racist against me. And because we know these things, it helps us to be more unified and to be more understanding and empathetic of our differences. Well, I wanna thank you both for your work. It's a great pleasure to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tara. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.